from the Moan Broadcast Center. This is Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Amy Martinez. Another big day in Washington, as you heard all day today on 89.3 KPCC. The Senate voted that the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump can proceed. Six Republicans joined the Democrats in the 56 to 44 vote. And uh, starting tomorrow, House Democrats will have two eight-hour days to present their case. Once they're done, Trump's legal team will have two eight-hour days to defend the former president. So for a little analysis, we're going to turn now to Sam Ehrman, professor of law at USC. Professor, welcome to Take Two. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, House managers uh, led by Jamie Raskin opened with a video of the assault on the Capitol. It weaves between scenes of former President Trump at the rally the day of the insurrection with different shots of insurrectionists making their way to and into the Capitol building. Professor, what do you think of the video, first off? Uh, it struck me as a very powerful way to open these proceedings, in part because it was a reminder of events that the jurors in this case, the senators, had themselves been a part of. So it was a way to make vivid, once again, something they had lived through that was quite scary um, and quite unsettling. And the House managers, it seems with the video, Professor, were trying to connect the dots between the actions of the insurrectionists and the president's words. How effective do you think that was? Uh, I think it was very effective, uh, in the sense of this being a form of kind of communication that was designed to make a case in public. It does not seem that if the goal was to get enough votes to convict the president, that it was effective enough to accomplish that. But it's hard to imagine anything could have accomplished that given the partisan landscape right now. Yeah, the managers also used a lot of their time countering the argument that Donald Trump's lawyers are making, which is that the trial itself would be unconstitutional. What was their argument, the House manager's argument? Um, so basically, the, the argument against constitutionality is primarily that you can't impeach a sitting president. And that's, uh, that's a pretty weak argument. The Constitution, it turns out, allows you to bar people who have been convicted after being impeached, to bar them from ever holding office again. Uh, and it wouldn't make much sense to put in that kind of a penalty or remedy in the Constitution and then allow people to avoid it simply by resigning their office. Yeah, that's called, what are they calling it? The January exception is what they were calling that. Right. And since impeachment is about when things go horribly wrong, and the thing the founders were most afraid of was tyrannical government, the idea that you could try to overturn the democracy and keep yourself in power, contrary to the Constitution, and that doing so would be the one thing you couldn't be convicted of, um, that would be a very strange interpretation of the impeachment clauses. Now, the argument uh, for putting a former president on trial that makes it unconstitutional, it seemed like was coming from Trump's lawyers that, hey, he's not in office anymore. The whole point of impeachment is that you are removing someone from office. He is not there anymore. What did you think of that uh, strategy? Well, that's not the whole point of impeachment. Impeachment allows for two remedies. One of them is to prevent people from retaking office, uh, and that still can be accomplished. But also, impeachment is the way in which the legislative branch is able to check an executive branch 
that has gone far afield from its constitutional duty. And just looking at the events recently, it seems clear that that sort of a check, you know, is appropriate in this case. And so um, you can you can kind of look at the text or the founding or the structure or just current events and what makes common sense, and they all point in the same direction. Preventing the former president from ever becoming president again, is that contingent on getting a conviction, or can they do that even if the conviction, or it gets acquitted, a conviction that doesn't stick? Well, to use the impeachment mechanism to achieve that, they need to have a conviction, because it's after the conviction that they get to vote on what the penalty will be, whether that penalty will be attached. There is a part of the Constitution where you can bar someone um, who's gone about sort of insurrection. That's a different process and not one that at least so far there's been much move to take up. How likely is that or could that be uh, something that happens if uh, the conviction doesn't happen? Well, I mean, I think basically that will just come down to a question of politics. And the um, I think for the Democrats, every day they spend on President Trump is time away from President Biden's agenda. Uh, it appears that the Democrats think moving through this quickly is a good idea for them. And so it, I think right now, at least it seems not very likely that they would try a second way to censure or to prevent future office holding by Trump. Talking to Sam Ehrman, professor of law at USC. Uh, Trump's lawyers also had their own video. It was a montage of Democrats calling for Trump's impeachment over the years of his presidency. Uh, professor, what did you think uh, their intent was by showing their video? Um, so their intent is, I think, twofold. One is to suggest that this latest impeachment wasn't because of what Trump did, that there was a pre-existing desire to get at President Trump. Um, and the other is to try to just transform this as much as possible into a partisan affair. So these are videos that will be watched by the general public. And if you can rile up the Republican base that favors Trump, uh, it makes it less likely that their elected representatives would then vote against Trump. So the videos, then both videos, Professor, sounds like weren't necessarily for the senators or weren't uh, really related to what was being argued today, the constitutionality of putting the former president on trial. It seemed like it was more for the theater of it all. That's right, to a degree. I mean, I think they are for the senators in the sense that the senators are political. And so the way that you convince the way that you convince people whose careers as politics to do things is through political communications and that's what these videos were trump's lawyer bruce castor said that the floodgates will open if he's convicted that uh, partisan impeachments will become commonplace again how how is this argument by castor against the constitutionality of an impeachment trial what is this what does what he argues have to do with what they were trying to argue about today Right. So as a constitutional argument, the claim would be it can't possibly be the case that you could impeach former officials, because if so, that is a power that Congress could not help but constantly abuse. And that seems to be a very weak argument because it's most people have presumed Congress could impeach former officials and they've almost never done so. Um, 
But the other argument is to say, we're in a hyper-partisan time now. This is just further partisanship. Um, I guess to make people think maybe this would become more common, but also to just recast the whole question as nothing more than politics. What about the argument that former President Trump's words at the rally are protected by the First Amendment? How would that be determined? Um, So the Senate gets to decide this question. So it's the Senate who's going to get to decide whether or not to convict the president. And if they do, it's almost unthinkable that the courts would intervene to reverse that decision. Um, The argument that the president has a First Amendment right that sort of saves him from impeachment is pretty weak because it's easy to come up with examples of things you might allow a private citizen to do, but that you think should be the sort of thing a president should be able to be removed for office from. Um, and so it's, it's the kind of argument that sounds good right away, but as soon as you start thinking about its implications, it kind of collapses on itself. How much of what we heard today, both from the House managers and Trump's defense, will we expect to hear as the days move forward? I think a lot of it. So although ostensibly this was today about the constitutionality of going forward and then we moved to the merits of the case, the what we're really seeing is a question of can you muster votes and what will the political fallout from this be? And so both sides had lots of incentives to put their best arguments forward right away. And then they will have lots of incentives to repeat their strongest arguments going forward. Today, the vote went down 56 to 44. It would take uh, 11 more Republicans who didn't believe that the Senate uh, should be trying Trump at all to change their vote. How likely do you think that is in the next few days? It seems unlikely. Um, So one reason is that we're just in a very polarized uh, landscape right now. So it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to get that many members of a party to vote against a president of their party in general. But the fact that they had to vote on the question that was framed as a constitutional question in some ways makes it even harder for them to change their votes because they've now committed themselves publicly to the idea that the Constitution bars this trial. So then to convict would be to say, I had a constitutional view, and I did something that's at least in tension with it. So, Professor, really quick, one more thing. So for the layman like me, it almost seems like the trial is a moot point. Um, If you think that the trial is about deciding whether or not to remove or to prevent President Trump from ever holding office again, uh, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of doubt as to how the trial is going to end up. If you think it's about trying to establish norms and a new political consensus, inform the public, sort of drive the future of our democratic politics, the trial still has the potential to move the ball. That's USC law professor Sam Ehrman. Professor, thanks a lot. Thank you. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us.
Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Ian Martinez. Today, a little more than a year after Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed in Calabasas, the National Transportation Safety Board delivered its finding on the cause. The pilot became disoriented in the clouds. Special disorientation. It's a problem. Uh, in the last 10 years, 184 crashes related to spatial disorientation, 20 of which were helicopters. That was NTSB Chairman Robert Samwalt this morning addressing the press. Now, it's not an unexpected determination. The sky was thick with fog and haze the morning that uh, Kobe Bryant's flight took off. But uh, where does that leave us now? Those who've mourned the loss of Kobe, his daughter, her teammates, and their parents. Journalist Jeff Wise wrote a detailed account for Vanity Fair about what happened the day of the crash. Jeff, welcome to Take Two. Thanks for having me. You read uh, the thousand-page NTSB docket on the crash, and based uh, you based your account for Vanity Fair on that. Uh, are today's findings what you expected based on your own research? Yeah, it was very much in keeping with that. You know, th- these documents have been. Uh, around, um, as you pointed out, for about a year now. The NTSB did a really exhaustive job uh, interviewing uh, people in every aspect of the operation. Uh, and so really, I was very impressed by the comprehensiveness which, with which they did their work. Um, they, they, there was one interesting thing that hadn't really been uh, highlighted before. Um, after uh, the pilot flew into the clouds, he basically needed to keep the plane level as he climbed up. There was a thousand foot thick cloud layer. He had to climb up through that and he had to keep his basically imagine wings level. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. helicopters have wings, but he had to keep his, 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 uh, cockpit level as he climbed up. Um, and to do that, he had to really pay attention to his instrument panel. Um, but as he was climbing, he's talking to air traffic control and they, t- they ask him to push a button on his panel so that they can see him on the radar screen. As he's doing that, he gets he he loses his focus. He stops looking at the, the flight instruments, and that's when he gets a little bit askew, and he starts to turn, and that's why he winds up diving into the ground. So that's kind of a new insight. And the pilot, uh, Ara Zubayan, uh, the NTSB says the responsibility lies uh, almost, if not entirely, on him. The pilot has the ultimate responsibility to control his or her airplane or helicopter, as this, this case may be. And so uh, we feel that whatever air traffic control did or did not do, was uh, not a factor at all in in the crash. Do you think that's uh, accurate based on your reporting and what you heard today in the hearing? Yeah, you know, one of the things that was really interesting that came out in the hearing today was they, you know, as as everyone has like sort of known from the get go, is that yes, he he broke the rules. He flew into a cloud, which you're not supposed to do. And then once he flew into the cloud, he didn't use his training for how to get out of the cloud. So that's clearly all on him. But the NTSB made made a very interesting point today, which is that just because he made a mistake and everyone died, doesn't mean that he's necessarily a bad pilot. Uh, They said that, you know, everyone makes mistakes and that's kind of, there's sort of an inherent risk in human beings flying at all. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned in your story how um, he would have uh, different flights that required a lot of skill, a lot of stamina, and, and he was able to pull off a, a lot of almost dangerous situations. Uh, he pulled them off just fine. Well, he had, this is actually a problem. He had flown into clouds before. You should never fly into clouds. It's illegal and it's dangerous. But he had done it and he had pulled it off successfully in the past, which probably encouraged him to do it this time, of course, this time with fatal results. So 
I think in this case, he, he overestimated his own considerable uh, amount of skill. Now, uh, there is a lawsuit that Vanessa Bryant, Kobe's widow, filed against the company that employed Zobayan, uh, and a lawsuit that the company filed against the air traffic controllers working with the pilot that day. What effect might this report have on all those lawsuits? I think the lawsuit, well, I, there's, as I said, there's, there isn't really fundamentally too much new that came out today. I think all the information that, was, that would be relevant to any of those cases already existed. I would say, as a matter of my personal opinion, that the, the, that the lawsuit against air traffic control is absolutely baseless. They, they have absolutely no responsibility here whatsoever. As for Island Express, again, the, the NTSB said today that, you know, it's not an unsafe company. Bad things can happen to good companies you know, as to whether they're, they were too lackadaisical about enforcing their own safety management system, you know, that's probably something a jury is ultimately going to have to decide, or they'll settle. Yeah, and Island's Destinations, that's uh, the company Arazabayan uh, was employed by. What, what can you tell us about the pilot, his experience level, and his, actually his relationship with Kobe Bryant? Right, so uh, Arazabayan was a really widely uh, admired uh, as a pilot, he was liked as a person. Um, Kobe, you know, wasn't a friend of his, but he had known him for, for years, had used him for many years. He was, Zaboyan was the pilot that he would ask for um, and, you know, trusted him to carry his own kids. Uh, and so, you know, he was highly thought of. And they didn't, that was not some, that was, they didn't feel that way about everybody. There were some pilots that they said, we don't want to fly with this other person. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that the NTSB said today was, you know, this high regard that he was held in by Kobe and Vanessa might have caused him to feel pressure to get the job done, to get them to where they wanted to go uh, with potentially fatal uh, outcome. Yeah, it was a point of pride for Zabayan and the, the company that Kobe Bryant chose them uh, to, to be their helicopter ride. That's right. One of the pilots I talked to who worked for the company said it was their feather in their cap. The fact that Kobe Bryant chose them really was the highest honor that they could, you know, display to the world. Now, you're a recreational pilot, Jeff. Have you been in situations where you have felt uh, maybe the pressure to get there despite conditions being less than ideal? I mean, I think any pilot is constantly weighing uh, that judgment call. Do I go? Do I not go? Are the conditions, um, is it too windy? Is the visibility too low? Um, might I encounter bad weather en route? Uh, I am myself personally very conservative, but that's because I'm just not as skilled uh, or self-confident as somebody like Zaboyan, who, you know, was flying every day. He had a ton of experience. He knew this area really well. He'd been flying it for over a decade. Um, and I think sometimes confidence can be dangerous. Yeah, and the difference is, I guess, Jeff, you're doing it recreationally, and, and uh, Zabayan was was doing it professionally and put a lot of pressure on himself to, to get as many jobs as possible, especially impressing a big-time client like Kobe Bryant. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a real risk factor in a lot of um, uh, kind of this is called Part 135. It's like you're not uh, a scheduled airline flight. It's like charter. Um, you're being hired by individuals to take you to a certain place. And, you know, it, 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 actually, another interesting thing the NTSB said today is that there's been numerous crashes where the, the, the customer was a celebrity and there is that kind of extra uh, you know, emotional force of, yeah. of you know, wanting to uh, impress or, so, or serve someone who is famous. When it comes to this idea of just getting there, I mean, how, how often does it happen where it's dangerous when you're 
this close. In other words, if 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 all of this, if say the clouds had happened right when they took off from from John Wayne Airport in Orange County, and, and then you go back, I guess it's not a big deal or as much of a big deal because you really haven't gotten into the flight. But when, I mean, when you get as close as they were, this this pressure to finish the flight. I mean, how much do you think that might have factored in? Well, they specifically called out that point today. Uh, They pointed out that the closer you get to your goal, the harder it is to give up on that goal. And they were only 17 miles from Calabasas, so they were just minutes of flying time away from getting to where they were going. And in fact, you know, if he had dived a little bit, um, you know, one of the real tragedies of of this story is how close he came to being okay. I mean, he, he, you know, the, the, the deck was, was pretty low, but there was, it, it didn't quite reach all the way to the ground as they went through this pass. So he was just past the highest point of the pass. It was actually descending terrain from there. So if he had maybe dived a little bit more vigorously or kept a little bit lower, and he could have just pressed on and, and been there. Um, so, you know, he was that, that close. And when you're that, that close, it really does make it hard to give up and, and, and to take the loss and to, you know, go land somewhere and make Kobe yeah. and the rest of the people climb into a limo instead and take an extra hour on the highway. It's really, really hard. One more thing, Jeff. I know the NTSB had a number of recommendations coming out of this investigation. What were some of them uh, that you think uh, might be able to prevent uh, this crash or similar crashes in the future? Well, they did have a couple of recommendations, but they're pretty technical and maybe not that interesting to the listeners. And I think the the real take home is that uh, as you you know you let, you let off this uh, segment with the, with the audio tape, they they pointed out that th- these these kinds of crashes with helicopters flying into clouds, getting disoriented and crashing, they happen twice a year. For the last 10 years, we're losing two helicopters a year, um, setting aside even even the the fixed-wing aircraft that this is happening to. This is a really persistent problem that they just haven't been able to get a handle on. That's Jeff Wise. He wrote a detailed account about the day Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed for Vanity Fair. Jeff, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so you can always find us uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. Just look for Take Two. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on social media, on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. The impeachment trial is uh, tomorrow at 9, right here on 89.3 KPCC. Marketplace is coming up next.